Hello and welcome to the New Lines podcast. I'm Faisal Yafai. And this is a podcast where we delve into some of the biggest ideas, events and personalities in the Middle East and beyond. Throughout the 19th century, the empires of Britain and France had held long-held ambitions to dominate the Middle East. Following the collapse of the Ottoman Empire at the end of the First World War, the victorious imperial powers could finally accomplish their goal. France, which already had substantial territories in North Africa, took Syria and Lebanon. Iraq, Jordan and Palestine came under British dominion. To talk about these issues, our guest today is the historian James Barr, a visiting fellow at King's College London. His book, A Line in the Sand, chronicles the ensuing rivalry between the two powers as they each vied for influence in the region they divided up between them. In his 2018 follow-up, Lords of the Desert, he picks up where he left off in the 1940s. France, more or less gone from the region, had been replaced by the United States. But if the British had hoped for a more pliable ally, they were to be disappointed. Instead, yet again, the British found themselves locked in rivalry in the Middle East with a power they had once considered an ally, one which would have an important hand in their ultimate withdrawal. James Barr, welcome to the podcast. Faisal, thank you for having me. Both of these books tell the story of great powers seeking to dominate the Middle East. So I suppose my first question has to be, why? Why are imperial powers so determined to control the region? That is a really good question. And in a sense, it's actually what I'm now working on for my next book, which is going to be called The Arena, because this isn't, of course, the first time this happens. You can go right back in time, say, to the the Parthians and the Romans, uh, you know, in the the sort of early BC uh, or just before Christ and, and, you know, see similar dynamics happening. There's there's there. Over time, there are constant clashes between powers that are outsiders uh, to try and dominate this part of the world. And I suppose it boils down, it boils down ultimately to the fact that this is, uh, you know, it is the centre of the world. It's the centre for um, historically for so many civilizations. Uh, there are resources there that, that people have wanted to command. And certainly by the turn of the 20th century, both Britain and France felt that they, they sort of needed to be there. It was part of, uh, I think, a sense that they derived prestige from it, really. That was that was what mattered, even before oil. And oil wasn't really a factor right at the beginning of, of, of the 20th century. Yeah, so there's a kind of political logic to it. And I suppose that there's almost a, a kind of cascading logic to empire in general. I mean, as you say, the you know the British and the and the the French were looking at this region and thinking to themselves, if we are to be the dominant power, which they are rivals among themselves, we need to be there in some form. That's right. I mean, it, one of the things that it, it helps, and in a sense, I've only really realised this since writing A Line in the Sand, hmm. but it, it helps to see the British as an Eastern power. So when you're thinking about this rivalry between Britain and France, the French, of course, had first tried to get a foothold there. Well, I suppose you could say during the Crusades, but let's fast forward on to the end of the 18th century yeah. and Napoleon. Napoleon invaded in 1798, he invaded Egypt and then um, you know, advanced into Syria where he found he couldn't take uh, the Crusader port of Acre and, and had to retire. Uh, but that, you know, that's critical because that was um, the French trying to really to make their way to India, which of course, by that point, the British dominated. And it's India that explains Britain's interest in the Middle East at the turn of the 20th century, uh, mm. because 
their big concern after they lost the colonies in America at the end of the 18th century was that India was the jewel in the imperial crown. And it was protecting that from from all comers, and that included both, you know, the enemy in the in the First World War, Second World War, but also their allies, the the, the French and the Russians in 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 well in both world wars. But but particularly, they were thinking, you know, what happens when we win? Assuming we win this war, yeah. you know, we are going to have to keep these people out of it, and that is, you know, that is the the key to understanding what the British were about. But why do you think it? So okay, so they're in. You think of them as an Eastern power, and then I suppose in that, if you're using that metaphor, what would the French be? Would the French be the Western power? The French are, the, are effectively the Western power in, in in this. They, as you absolutely rightly said, had uh, you know a developing empire in North Africa. Uh, they felt that uh, to control that better, it might be um, or it would be valuable to to control. Uh, Damascus. In fact, they they felt that this would it would enable them to to control um, Islamic politics better. Now, how much that was just a justification for you know another land grab, I, I'm I'm not certain, but it certainly was a a vein of their thinking, and and so that's why they were keen to to get a toehold uh, in the Eastern Mediterranean again. So, okay, you have the the French coming in from North Africa, and you have the British trying to protect their protectorates east of Aden and then they kind of clash over the Levant but I wonder why you think it it took them so long to get to that point because throughout the the 19th century um, these powers had made no secret of their interest in the region certainly in India but at the point at which you begin the story the Middle East was the probably the only region in the world not yet dominated by European colonial powers. It was the like the world's last holdout against European colonialism. So why had it taken them so long to kind of converge on that region? I think it was an un, an uncertainty, a caution about what would happen if the Ottoman Empire collapsed. So the 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 uncertainty that the sort of calculation that that determines a lot of what happens between napoleon and the sykes pico agreement so mm. that 100 year period from 1815 to, to 1915 is is this this uncertainty of uh, the basic belief is the Ottoman Empire is going to collapse, but we don't want to force that to happen because we don't know whether we'll get a, a good deal out of what comes. We cannot predict the outcome of this the implosion of of, of the Ottomans. And so mm. although the British thought that the French were trying to 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 blow up the Ottoman Empire, and, and I think the French thought likewise, the truth was that neither neither side was, nor the Russians as well, in their from their corner. Everybody was sort of maneuvering and and trying to establish power within the, the the sort of weakness of the ottoman the ottoman empire like to try so, to course, pull pieces of the empire apart but not to let the sublime porte break apart exactly and 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 so you see the french and the and the russians very much trying to use the sort of religious influence to you know and the the, the religious institutions they they either controlled or or or, or were very close to to try to you know acquire more influence within this this sort of declining uh this declining this declining mass yeah. uh, the british didn't have quite the same they didn't have the same frankly they didn't have the same um 
levers in in the Ottoman Empire. They did. I mean, they had some presence in Iraq, but 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 they the French were actually you know much better established there uh, at that point in time. But of course, the you know the the onset of the First World War, the fact that the Ottomans joined the Germans changed that calculation, and so the British flipped from a a, a position of saying, well, we you know we support the Ottoman Empire to to um, you know to thinking about what would succeed it, and of course that is where then then Britain and France find themselves in a, uh, you know, in a much more confrontational situation. Yeah, it's interesting to think about it in terms of uh, modern day politics. And they didn't have such a thing as regime change. But I guess if they had, it would have been better to change the regime in Istanbul rather than to get rid of the whole empire. Well, they certainly, I mean, they tried to reform it repeatedly, or they, that's what they, they said they were trying to do. Uh, but but yeah, it, was, it wasn't quite the same thing. Although, you know, there was... That, that there was interest in 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 the local politics. I suppose you could you could argue that, say, British or French support for Mehmet Ali in in uh, in Egypt was a was a sort of form of regime change in in a sense, or at least it was it it was edging towards the point where where the, they would would well destabilize the the, the sublime Porte, but but they didn't want to quite get make that final step. Not until. Not until 1914. Yeah, and it was World War One that finally gave them that opportunity. And actually, the the line in a line in the sand is the one dividing British conquests and French conquests in the former Ottoman Empire, um, as set out in the Sykes-Picot Agreement. So, I guess that's the place to start. But for listeners who don't know, perhaps you could give a brief overview of what the Sykes-Picot Agreement was. At its simplest, it was. A deal, a secret deal, to carve up the 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 Middle Eastern, uh, the, the 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 Levantine part of the Ottoman Empire between France and Britain. So there was a diagonal line drawn, and in Sykes's infamous words, this was to run from the E of Acre to the last K in Kirkuk, uh, and. North of that line, the territory would go to France, and south of that line, the territory would go to to Britain. Now there were mm. distinctions within that territory, but broadly, the assumption on both sides was that 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 the, the French would control the territory to the north and the British to the south. There was one fly in the ointment, though, and that was the future of Palestine, which they the two men, Sykes and Picot, then. Um, British and French negotiators couldn't agree about, and so they uh, reluctantly they came to the view that it would have an international administration, and that's probably the most important longer term uh, sort of factor about the, the Sykes Picot Agreement and its its major I say failing or clearly the whole thing was a um, you know can be argued to be a fa- a failure, but but the point was that that then. Uh, because the British di- particularly didn't like what what was going on there, that led the British then to speak to the Zionists uh, immediately. No, no sooner than the ink was dry on the on the deal, uh, and so the Balfour Declaration, which follows the year after, is the direct successor and consequence of the failure of the British to get Palestine in the Sykes-Picot Agreement. So that was because the British at the same time had been having multiple conversations with. 
re with people in the region about what the division would be. So they were talking to the Hashemites about this greater Arab state. Uh, they were talking to the Zionist movement about what happened to Palestine. They talked to the Kurds as well. You, what was the, the division between the British and the French over Palestine? The British wanted to, they did eventually promise it to the Zionist movement. But what were the French uh, intending for it? The, the French wanted it for themselves because they saw themselves as the protectors of, of Christians in uh, the Ottoman Empire. And that was uh, a, a privilege that they had been given by the Ottoman Sultan, I think, in the 16th century, if I remember rightly. And it was something they held on to precisely because of the influence that it gave them in Ottoman politics and in 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 that part of the world and the prestige that came with it that was you know that mattered to them uh and so that was what they wanted and and uh and they you know they were determined to get it but but uh but on the other side the british saw this in a much more uh sort of geopolitical terms they really wanted well the, again the phrase that sykes used was built of english controlled country and so they wanted the british wanted this cordon sanitaire across uh, the region from egypt which they controlled since 1882 right up to the iranian frontier uh, to keep uh, france and russia as far away from india as possible and so actually i mean you said that the the sykes picot line was a failure but actually it's proved surprisingly endurable for listeners who who don't have access to a map if you look at that line which they drew from acre in now in what is now israel to kirkuk in what is now iraq it actually goes directly across the southern border of modern day syria so it pretty much follows the contours of jordan of syria uh, and let's say two-thirds of Iraq, because the, the Kirkuk is below Mosul, which uh, uh, eventually is now in Iraq, but wasn't then. It, yeah, exactly. I mean, it, as you say, it is. it has endured, and the, and, the, and the vestiges of the deal can be seen in that in that strange diagonal line. But it was quite an old-fashioned deal, even when it was done. So those sorts of straight-line deals, of course, you know, if you look at a map of Africa, you can see uh, you know, these sorts of lines everywhere. Yeah. But of course, by the time that the First World War ended, the thought was of self-determination, of trying to you know, create borders that allowed for, you know, people's different, you know, to sort of separate, but um, to, to to create sort of national identities. Uh, so this sort of carve up already looked a pretty old fashioned arrangement. And of course, you know, when the Americans found out about it, when they entered the war, they were um, very, very sceptical, you know, uh, to put it mildly about about what had been going on behind their backs. Hmm. I mean, we we talk about you know these lines, and as you say, they become quite familiar from the modern day borders because we we sort of get used to how they look on the map. But actually, these these borders they didn't reflect any pre existing political division. They they didn't follow any geographical contours. They didn't take any account of what was happening on the ground. They were literally just lines. It was absolutely. I mean, if you see the original map, which is uh, there's two copies. There's one in France and one in 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 the UK. The, the British ones at the National Archives in Kew in South London, and you know it's done with a um, colour pencil and and freehand. Uh, it's really quite an extraordinary document. Extraordinary. To see. I mean, the, the entirety, a century of people's lives, of business, of politics, of relationships, just decided by the stroke of a, I mean, of a crayon. But I think 
you have to sort of understand what this was really about and in a sense it wasn't about drawing a, a frontier nobody everyone knew that you didn't draw frontiers in that way or, or you know you would send out parties of surveyors and they would pile up stones and whitewash them and look at watersheds and all that sort of stuff but the point is the reason for the sykes Pico agreement has nothing to do with the middle east it's it's all to do with the rather terrible state of anglo-french relations at that point in the first world war where um the war wasn't over by the christmas 1914 it had gone on the french had lost far far more soldiers fighting than the british had because the british had said well we want to save ourselves we need to train up a new army uh, which of course was eventually unleashed at the battle of the somme in 1916 but all through this time you know the british are the british are very conscious that they weren't really pulling their weight uh, uh you know and the french were getting more and more um annoyed about that meanwhile the british thought well perhaps to break this deadlock on the western front we open a new front we could attack the ottomans who who look like the weak link and potentially we could knock them out of the war and uh, uh and open a new front in south east europe that will force you know the germans the austro-hungarians to divert uh effort away from the western front and change the, the you know the balance of force yeah so that was what was going on but as soon as the british mentioned that as soon as they mentioned the gallipoli idea the the french were instantly suspicious because they thought empire the first thing they thought was that britain was was not in particularly britain had sort of lost interest in the war or had slightly lost focus and was now thinking about empire building and so this deal the sykes pico deal was necessary to allay french concerns but it was a bit of a sticking plaster it was it was a way of getting a deal on a piece of paper uh and i don't think either sykes well certainly i don't think sykes and and probably not pico either really felt that that diagonal line that they'd drawn on the map in red and blue crayon was going to be you know a frontier in the future the strange thing i suppose is that it did turn out to be yeah ironically i mean so many countries still use those exact same borders yeah, exactly. Um, when we talk about it in these abstract terms, I mean, it can come across as being very cordial, but that is something that you make very clear in the book, that it was nothing like that. But what When we talk about the French and the British being allies, actually you were papering over a rivalry that was so intense that it almost, it almost just fell short of direct confrontation. Well, I mean, and particularly after after the First World War, yes, because uh, because neither side, neither the British or the French, really wanted the other the other one there as their immediate neighbour, and the British initially did all they could to really make the the, the job of the French harder, and they they they. Uh, the British, of course, had done most of the fighting in the Middle East during the war, and they kept their troops there until a point where they realised they just couldn't afford to to keep troops there anymore. And then very abruptly withdrew, leaving the French to pick up the pieces and to deal with um, incipient you know, Arab anger, Arab nationalism that had built up a head of steam because of the promises that Britain had made to the Arabs during the war to get them to to rebel against the Ottomans. Yeah. Uh, you know, but the French were left dealing with the, the outcome of that and dealing with, you know, very fired up people who wanted uh, a state of their own, uh, you know, uh, and, and were hoping for a degree of Arab unity, you know, across um, the northern Middle East. So, that that was a a, a tough challenge. Uh, funnily enough, of course, or 
funny but but the strange thing was i suppose that britain actually ended up dealing with the consequences of that first because it was the british who tried to impose government a, a sort of a, a, a foreign government on iraq first and then faced the the, the reaction from that but it was the french who then spent much of the 1920s fighting this sort of slow burning war in syria against the druze and syrian nationalists who got a lot of their support from from inside british territory and that uh is a very interesting it's a very interesting story and it it, it um it forms a sort of chunk of the middle part of a line in the sand yeah uh, and this big question about you know were the british helping them what what was actually going on it's um yeah it's yeah. It's, a, it's a strange story and it contributes to the sort of you know the the, the embitterment of of anglo-french relations during that time yeah, I mean, you mentioned Iraq, and I wanted to, to pick up on it because I, the other aspect of the whole story is that the borders and mandates and treaties and other legal instruments—they're just, first of all, they're lines and in, in, you know on a page, but actually turning that into a geographical reality, a geopolitical reality, is much harder. It requires the application of serious and sustained violence. So we talk about Iraq. You look at Iraq in 1920. You have this uprising. Um, the Sunni, the Shia, the Kurdish rebels, they have this uprising against British rule in favor of what you talked about, this independent Arab government that they've been talking about. And in order to repress it, it required tens of thousands of troops. It required British air power. It required, uh, of course, Winston Churchill advocating the use of chemical weapons. And then at the end of it all, they're still forced to give this mandate um, more autonomy and to, to install Faisal I as king. Exactly. I mean, this is, you know, it, it, in a sense, it's quite a, well, it's a, a familiar story because the British didn't have any money at the end of the war. They they were, you know, bankrupt, but but certainly could not afford this kind of uh, sort of colonial adventure. And there were plenty of people in in Britain who felt that you know they might be they might have been pro empire but they felt that the empire was quite big enough already thanks very much even with the prospect of of oil which of course was what had drawn the british in it was you know towards the end of the even if sykes and pico or sykes when he was negotiating this deal of course gave um france the you know the the area where most of the the, the sort of northern iraqi oil fields are he he didn't care about oil it wasn't it wasn't really you know within his um uh sort of purview at all he wasn't told you know told to worry about that he was just thinking of strategically about about protecting india and it was only in 1918 the british suddenly thought oh there's oil here and you know if we could get hold of this that would be good and the reason they did that the reason it suddenly became important was because actually because the anglo-american relationship was also becoming very prickly and america had supplied most of the oil during the first world war but in, was obviously increasingly anti-imperialist itself and the president woodrow wilson was making more and more strident comments about in the way that imperialism had caused the war and the british thought hmm, we need we need oil from elsewhere and it was iraq that was going to supply it so right at the end of the war of course the british who'd been in baghdad they they'd been following the the letter of the sykes pico agreement but right at the end of the war after the armistice had been signed they steamed north they took mosul uh to give themselves control uh over that you know that oil bearing part of um of iraq what is now iraq 
yeah. uh, essentially to 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 override the the Sykes Pico agreement. But they then faced, as you said, you know, they faced enormous uproar. They they weren't wanted. Uh, they were very slow to sort of see the signs of that, and the the administrators on the spot were. I suppose trying to well they were they were they thought that it would be very hard to get oil investment if there was an Arab government in place because that was would have been a novelty which I I suppose you can say is you know that that, that wasn't an unreasonable thing but underlying that was this basic well James, I mean you know yeah. it, I think yeah, maybe I'm, saying it, it was a, not an unreasonable thing might be I'm I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt the, I'm feeling well, generous yeah. I'm feeling okay. generous this afternoon but you I mean think that uh, that generosity is warranted yeah. after the no I don't think it is years. I don't think yeah. it is I think you know ultimately it was it was racism it, the basic belief oh, was yeah. these people have got no experience of governing themselves or not you know within the last um 500 years and uh you know they're not going to start doing that now in the same way that the French felt they, you know, they lost a lot in the in the war, the British also were thinking, you know, how do we, how do we, um, you know, recoup our position? Um, mm. And Iraq bore the brunt of that. I want us to come to the American entry into the region, but before we do that, I wanted to talk a little bit about writing history. So we had uh, we had Eugene Rogan, professor of uh, modern Middle Eastern history at Oxford, on the show a few weeks ago. And he talked about how he writes history in a very personal, human-focused way. And I hope, I mean, I hope you'll take it as a compliment when I say that your own storytelling style in the books are much the same. You know, on the one hand, the story you tell in these books has this big geopolitical scope. But at the same time, it's told through the eyes of the individuals who drove it. And I wondered why you thought to take that particular approach. I think because it's accessible. That's the the honest, um, the honest answer. And I think mm. one, you know, there are plenty of people out there who would say, you know, beware overstressing the role of individuals or you know, great men. I suppose. Yeah. Um, and it's you know that's something I am aware of and, and wary about. At the same time, what one is trying to do is to sort of personalise and as far as possible, rather than talking about you know abstract forces, uh, mm. as far as you can is to try to you know to to tell the story through people, but not least because a lot of these people are uh, extraordinary, often very flawed, uh, and, and they say the most extraordinary things, which. Um, you know, are, are very well documented in the 20th century archives. What I find, of... yeah, yeah, go ahead. What I find now, so now I'm working on a book that has a much wider scope. So I'm starting in about 600 BC and and hopefully coming quite close to the present day, uh, but without writing a book that's hopefully much longer than the previous books have been. So there'll be inevitably less space to focus on on individuals, and also one has to bring in big forces like climate uh, into it, because clearly when you start looking, when you stand back a long way, you can see that in periods like the 17th century or, uh, you know, around the sort of the collapse of the Assyrian Empire in the 7th century BC, that there, you know, there are climatic factors. The question, I suppose, is rather than writing them about them in a fairly dry and abstract way, whether one can fold them into, you know, to to individual stories yeah uh, that no, becomes that becomes a lot harder you know the further back you go the less you know the less evident or the less you know the less really sort of grainy material you have to work with so yeah it gets it gets harder as a technique it gets hard to find those those illustrative quotes that make, <laughs> make the person real yeah 
That's right. And exactly. one figure I thought you brought to life particularly well is, of course, we've talked about the architect, um, Mark Sykes himself, and he was a very colorful character. So I wondered if you could give us a flavor of that color of those quotes. Um, you know, this man who he shares so much responsibility for the way the Middle East looks today, but he wasn't a typical, he wasn't a politician in the way that we might, he wasn't a serious politician by any stretch. He wasn't at all. He was somebody who sort of found himself in the right place at the right time. And he uh, he came from a, a, a well-known um, sort of, uh, I mean, they they were the baronets, the family still exists. Uh, there's sort of two branches of it. And one branch um, has its family seat in, in Yorkshire, in a rather grand house that I've been to a few years back. Uh, and actually going there is quite interesting because they, they clearly, as a family, got a sense of humour. And it's a little bit, it's unlike most stately homes that you go around because there's just little flashes of of humour in there. And in one room, I remember you see there's a, it's a sort of a standard sort of, a, you know, grand house with lots of um, dark brown furniture and so on. But it, but in, in, in one room, there was a small toy car perched on, on one of these sort of... Um, chest of drawers or something like that with a, a, a little so a child's toy car with a fox sitting in it it's sort of slight sort of sort of uh what's the word a kind of um uh, subversion of what you'd expect to see in these sorts of places but Sykes grew up in that house and uh he had a very weird upbringing his father was um old quite old when when he married he was married to, uh, to Sykes's mother was about half um Sykes's father's age. Uh, she had repeated affairs. Sykes was an only child. But when they were, when he was about 11 years old, he went to Egypt for the first time. And he was obviously entranced by it. And he he then returned there repeatedly as a as a as a young man mm. and ended up with a job uh, as an attache at the British Embassy in Istanbul. So he was sort of he had sort of struggled to find regular employment, I think we could say. He, he he went to university, he went to Cambridge, but he never managed to take his degree. He just didn't quite have the the sort of the, the, the staying power. And uh, so he ends up in, in Istanbul and uh, as an honorary attache. And then he made a series of I mean, it's really basically, uh, you know, adventurous tourism across um, the region in the era before the First World War. And that was how he made his name. So in 1915, just as as the whole question of what to do about the Middle East arise, uh, arises, he had published a book called The Caliph's, Caliph's Last Heritage, um, I think. It's a big, big, thick doorstopper of a tome. And, and it was that that he was able to sort of, you know, to, to kind of hold up and say, look, I know what I'm talking about. Mm. But the strange thing was, uh, and I need to be careful here, not being total hypocrite because I don't either, but he, he, he sort of made himself out to be a great expert. And uh, he made it. And, and, and interestingly, one of the things that comes across is that when he went to the cabinet meeting where he put his grand idea for how to, how to sort of, how to, to, you know, sort of fix the middle east and draw the lines uh he one of the cabinet ministers who was sitting there listening to him wrote to somebody else after the meeting that he's that that sykes obviously could speak turkish and arabic well the reality is that he couldn't speak either of those two languages so he was a bit of a bullshit artist i think would be the, the the um the way to put it you know there were like there would have been the odd um you know uh 
phrase dotted in uh, in in those languages that sort of thing yeah the and inshallah for today yes exactly alhamdulillah and sort of you know it's sort of it's that kind of thing and 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 you know it was enough to persuade people who really knew nothing about the subject and frankly for whom it was a bit of a a, a diversion of british politicians at that time had a lot else to worry about uh Sykes gave the impression of being all over the details on this. And so they were very happy to wave him off with his scheme and tell him to, to, to sort out the problem and to, to reach a deal with, uh, with Francois-Georges Picot, the French negotiator. So, mm. yes, it was, I, a, I, yeah. it was a, you know, it, it was probably an unwise choice. Whether someone else would have come up with a different scheme is, is an interesting question because... Uh, there were other powerful forces involved. There were the, the, the thing. This is where the India the, the angle comes in. Sykes eventually took uh, a plan to India, and effectively the, the the British officials in India rewrote it. and And when Sykes then proposed that line in ninety end of nineteen fifteen, in some ways what he was doing was was uh, was repeating you know what it was that um, that the, the government of India were were telling him to do. I wonder how you feel about some of these figures, uh, having researched them and you know eavesdropping across time on their their stories and their family histories and their conversations, because a lot of them. I mean, so much of British foreign policy at the time, some would say, still determined by the kind of peculiar idiosyncratic notions of these figures. But it also strikes me as being, well, maybe I should just ask you the question before I editorialize on it. How do you feel about some of these figures? I think they're they're both um, interesting and in in some ways, you know, quite uh, I say attractive. What do I, I what I mean by that is, I would love to meet Mark Sykes were he alive today. I'd be fascinated to meet him because I know that it would be an interesting meeting. He'd have a lot to say. I'm sure. I'm not whether one would get an, a word in edgeways is another matter, but. It would be very, very interesting to meet him at the same time that I feel that someone like him is someone who I wouldn't get on with. I, I would, you know, personally, I think his approach to things, his sort of his prejudices and, and whatever, uh, you know, I, I, it would it would be a it would be a strange meeting. That said, you've got to be very careful with all this that, you know, it, one brings a sort of 21st century sensitivity to people who who lived 100 years ago who had very different views and and you know views that that we would you know recoil at today about all, all kinds of stuff uh, but which feel, the... yeah do you ever feel that you are perhaps too forgiving towards some of these figures given what they did I don't know. That's a good. That, that's a very good question. Do you think so? Do you, maybe I think probably from a for, as as a, for anybody else, and particularly if you're not British or or French, that you would you would say perhaps this is too, uh, too forgiving, too um, too yeah, too generous, I suppose. But what I'm trying to do is trying. The danger is that one could be one could uh, be much more angry. One could sort of attack these people more i think i'm fairly harsh on on people like sykes i don't i think if, if reading that the description of sykes at the beginning of a line in the sand i don't think people would come away thinking that i thought he was a, a great guy but at the same time i'm trying to understand them and i'm trying to explain i think that you know that's the crucial job of history 
is not to criticize and not to you know to um to sort of bash people with what what we think of what you know our standards today but to explain what they were doing and why they were doing it but, but the to, standards you know, yeah james the and, standards and, and, sorry the standards are not questions about the way they spoke the standards are about their politics so this isn't a question of a hundred years ago people had different views about other uh, other races this is a question of people imposing political will on other nations that isn't something that has changed over the years that is something no. that we would have thought was bad then mm -hmm. and think is bad today well that's yeah that's but not everyone did i think that's the thing i think you know at that time a lot of people thought that was a perfectly fair thing to do because they believed that british standards were you know Brit, Brit, the british were very civilized and could could help other people who were less less fortunate you know and and help them help them on their way and uh yeah i think today you'd say it's firstly it's hypocritical or at least it, and it certainly it it was disingenuous because in most cases it was simply a case of getting hold of the resources uh you know the promises that were made uh when the mandates were were granted were you know it was always about leading people to be able to being able to 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 govern themselves but of course you know in palestine that that didn't happen until until the british were kicked out uh, and it only really happened in iraq again because of, of force so yeah there's I mean, a sort I, of yeah there's a sort of self-serving uh, argument there isn't there because it isn't the case that these countries and communities needed to be saved or needed to be governed they had civilizations and countries and nations and empires of their own so the, the idea that that they were somehow this community in the mountains and they needed civilizing is really very disingenuous quite the opposite actually it, it, it yeah you're right because it's very interesting i was just reading uh, the prop proclamation that general maud made when he entered baghdad in 1917 um yesterday in fact mm -hmm. and of course it shows this and it was it was drafted i think by sykes himself and it you know it makes great play of history and it's this appeal to the arabs telling them that you know that britain was hoping that they would be able to unify uh you know um gain regain freedom that they had been living under you know foreign government for i think 26 generations is the phrase that, that gets used so mm. i mean thinking to the mongol era i suppose sort of basically the collapse of the abbasids and and so you know that so the strange thing is is that they you know the british sort of weaponized this history they do know they know full well that there, you know there is um you know there was a a glorious era um you know in arab history but they you know and, and they in theory they pay lip service to it but the reality is that in 1920 they you know they they take over or 19, 1918 they mm. they take over and there is no real space for uh you know any kind of independent government uh, you know that we of a type that we'd recognize today uh, and yeah. then lastly yeah and then lastly on this topic i think i should ask do you, are you sensitive to the criticism that perhaps you are you are trying to explain what the imperial powers were doing rather than seeking to explain the effect of it on the people of that region yeah i i am aware of that and uh in a sense that's i don't claim that the book is a history of the middle east i think some people have sort of said this is a brilliant history of the middle east or whatever and i don't i never set out to to do that i 
taken the source the, the sources the archives that I've got and tried to explain the you know what the imperialist powers were doing but you know the books do not tell the story of how that felt partly because uh there you know there isn't the same level of very very contemporary detail there's there's quite a few memoirs of mm. of arab politicians but what i try to use when i can is the sources that are absolutely from the moment and if i can avoid later particularly memoirs which i think are really you know often very very dangerous uh, sources historic you know from a, from a historian's point of view because they're written with hindsight they're written to justify and all that sort of stuff the difficulty is is find you know can you find the sort of information you know the sort of sources that show actually what people really felt at that moment in time uh but i have to say i wasn't that wasn't what i was trying to do with the line and i wasn't trying to write a, a a history of you know a whole history of the middle east of what it but what that you know the experience of people uh, who were living uh under french and british rule was like i was just trying to explain you know this great power rivalry with the middle east as its um as its arena yeah well, let's move on then to talk about the relationship with America. Um, so this, the Americans become a major force in the region after World War II, just as the French are forced to leave Syria. And as had been the case between the British and the French after the First World War, the Americans and the British, who are ostensibly allies, they have, this, they have mutually exclusive visions for the Middle East. And in the opening pages, you quote a conversation between the then Prime Minister, uh, British Prime Minister Anthony Eden, and the notoriously hard-right MP Enoch Powell, who comes to prominence a little bit later in British public imagination. Yes. And, and, and Powell was explicit with Eden that, in this is a quote, in the Middle East, our greatest enemies are the Americans. And that runs counter to popular impressions of the British and uh, American relationship, I think. So I wonder if you can briefly explain what the two powers' interests in the Middle East were at the time, and then what was it that made them irreconcilable? So I think if you were going to try and sum that up, the, those two interests, very briefly, it would be that the, the British interest, well, the British were trying to cling on and the Americans were trying to barge in. I think that would be the the, the dynamic of it. Mm. And well, it's over two things. I mean, it's over trade uh, and then over oil, and those are the two big factors. Even before America's support for Israel became a becomes a, a, a real factor, right? And and by the middle of the the Second World War, the British were thinking, well, our, our main base now is. Suez. That is our. That is the, the strategically the most important place we have to to control. It would be great if there was a, a ring of um, of allied Arab states, or maybe one Arab state to, to its east, to protect the approaches to to the Suez from the the Russian kind of angle. And that cut across uh, American thinking, because the Americans were by then thinking about how they could. Uh, developed their oil interest in Saudi Arabia. And of course, they had won the oil concession there in the 30s, uh, found oil in about 1938. And so they were keen to develop Saudi. And once the war was over, the, the thing that they were very keen to do was to get Saudi oil and, and, and get it to Europe to help uh, fuel European reconstruction. And this then became the major uh, source of, of friction between the British 
and the Americans, because the British had, British had been the top, even though they hadn't got the oil concession, they were the, the top dog in Saudi Arabia during the 40s. They'd even managed to use American lend-lease aid. To, they'd sort of repackaged it and, and given the Saudis money, which the Americans were absolutely incandescent about. The Americans came up with this idea of building the Trans-Arabian Pipeline, and that was going to ship Saudi oil uh, to the Med and, and, and make it competitive uh, compared to Iranian oil, which of course was under British control. So, so there's this big commercial rivalry. So the British did their utmost to try to slow down the construction of this pipeline. And that is a fantastic example of the kind of, you know, what was going on under the surface between Britain and America yeah. in the, you know, the early years after the Second World War. Well, actually, that is what I wanted to conclude the conversation by talking a bit about this, these imperial rivalries, because it seems to me, I mean, both books, in a way, are about imperial rivalry, but you could also think that they're about imperial folly. You, you start a line in the sand with the Ottomans on the way out and the British on the way in, and then you finish Lords of the Desert with the British on the way out and the Americans on the way in. And I wondered if, if, you, if you're looking at America's current fortunes, you could perhaps imagine the events of the past decade as a chapter in a hypothetical third book in the trilogy with the Americans on the way out and, well, we don't yet know who's on the way in. That's the thing. It doesn't. It doesn't sort of fit quite so. I suppose so neatly. I mean, no. the thing is, I mean, with you know, with both these books, I'm trying to tell one one story, and you could argue that there are you know there are other factors in, involved in, in, in you know this time in, in both those but in, in the in the periods the books cover. But, but yes, I mean, well, it is folly, and it is this sort of belief that uh, you know that, that, that we can do better when the british arrived in palestine in 1917 you know the, the, the newspaper editorials sort of spoke of how they were going to bring a, a you know a new era of of um, kind of you know joy and happiness and and solve you know ancient problems the british would the british sort of british you know um, common sense would find a way and it, you, you yeah. read it now and it's it's ridiculous and yeah. I, it probably sounded ridiculous even then to people who you know who, who knew anything about the you know the depths of and the, com the, com the complexity of the problems uh, although of course they got worse as a result of um, you know Britain's sponsorship of, um, of the Balfe Declaration but yes I mean it's you know it, it I suppose that, and that's the big difference the big difference uh, you know, for Britain today, as I don't think we we don't go around the world with those, you know, with that kind of that sort of, I mean, self confidence is, is the most popular way of putting it. But you know, that that self belief that leads you to think that you know you can, you know, you can tell other people what to do in the same way. Mm. And that I is, guess... I suppose, what you know, that is what's happened with the United States. That you know, there was, of course, after two thousand and three, this great, you know, um, belief that. Uh, um, you know that American ways and means would 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 change Iraq. As, you know, it's beautifully chronicled or these very early um, part of the story is beautifully told by Raju Chandrasekharan in his book. Um, oh gosh, that title escapes me, but uh, um, something in the Emerald City. It's the the book about you know America's uh, occupation of Iraq immediately after the two thousand war and you know how there yeah. were sort of people with flip charts and management consultants there and all the rest and you know it, it's hubris and it, it it looked like that even very soon after the event and possibly even at the time but it, now you, it's even more like you much even much more yeah and i imagine in 100 years 
you know, people like us will be saying the same thing. Like, you can't believe that they thought that at the time. I think I think that's right. And yet, you know, it, 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 yet people manage to, and they manage to do that repeatedly. People people do believe they can somehow, um, you know, this time it will be different. This and with us, you know, we can we can solve this. Uh, I, I wanted to finish by sharing a quote from Edward Said about this. And in his book, Culture and Imperialism, he wrote, this is the quote, uh, it is quite common to hear high officials in Washington and elsewhere speak of changing the map of the Middle East, as if ancient societies and myriad peoples can be shaken up like so many peanuts in a jar. And I think when it's put like that, it really does seem like quite a ridiculous notion to hold on to and these beliefs to have. Why do you think these successive great powers, as we've just said, you know, the British 100 years ago, the Americans in 2003, why do you think that these great powers continue to believe it's an achievable goal? It's sort of, well, the kind of triumph of hope over experience, I suppose. I, 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 I actually I struggle to answer it. I struggle to answer it because I think if you do read the history and 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 think about it, you would say, well, what, you know, how are we going to be different? How are we going to manage to uh, to resolve um, something that, that was clearly unresolvable, but certainly requires, you know, deep, deep thought? And you know, if we pile into a place, will we really change it for the better? I, you know, I, I don't think. <laughs> I don't think people do read enough or don't think enough about how, you know, it, it, the story might be about other people. It might be about Britain and France 100 years ago, but it has a direct relevance to anybody thinking of doing the same thing today. James Barr, thank you very much. Thank you, Faisal. You can buy both of James's books, A Line in the Sand and Lords of the Desert, in all good bookshops. This week's podcast was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Faisal Yafai. You can subscribe to the New Lines magazine podcast on your favorite podcast app. And of course, you can find more of the best stories from the Middle East and beyond on our website, newlinesmag.com. Thank you all for joining us.